Today we started an eight-week series, sermon series on the church. Uh, I'm excited to talk about the church. Um, our series title, I've entitled the series, uh, Declaring the Manifold Wisdom of God. The title comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. And if you recall last week, um, our pastoral staff spoke from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 which says this, To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And our pastoral team went through those various concepts, and uh, it was a a great experience together. Verse 9 says this, And to bring the light to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 10, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is really quite a concept. That through the church, as the gospel is being preached, as the, uh, uh, the good news of Jesus is proclaimed, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Through the church. The manifold wisdom. The multiple. There's all kinds of facets to it. That all of that might be made known. That we have the opportunity to proclaim, to live out, to illustrate this incredible wisdom, mercy, grace of God. And then what's really interesting, and I think we need to ponder it, is we make it known to the heavenlies, to the angels. I find that very fascinating, that we are declaring the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly places to the angels. Folks, I think that says right here at the very beginning, you know, we're not playing church here. Westchester, and we don't just come together to play church. No, we have a part in declaring the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly places to the angels. And so I just thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for being a part of the church. All that God wants to do in us and through us. Well, I, I love the church. Um... Uh, I love being a pastor. I, have, uh, I am so grateful to God that he has called me to be a part of, of leading his church. And so I will enjoy, and I know my team will as well, I will enjoy talking about the church. And we're starting with an eight week, and, and there's so much more that I'd like to say. Uh, we're going to start with eight weeks on the theology of the church. And then, you know, there is more. Then in the fall, we're going to gather back again. And when the, the, the preaching sermon comes around in the fall, we're going to look at seven weeks, and we're going to look at the mission of the church. But still, there's just so much more that we would like to talk about. But we're going to have to focus. We're going to have to focus down. And it reminds me of, of a story, a story from Sherlock Holmes. Let me tell you this story. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip 
And after a good meal, they laid down for the night and went to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend. And he said, Watson, look at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions and millions of stars. Holmes asked, well, what does that tell you? Watson pondered for a minute. He said, astronomically, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is omnipotent and that there are small and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you? Holmes was silent for a minute and then he spoke. Watson, you meathead, it tells me that someone has stolen our tent. And so when it comes to talking about the church, there's all kinds of things that all of us pastors, we would love to talk about. We would love to talk about all the intricate theology, all the, we'd love to talk about all of that. But over these weeks, we're going to kind of come down to the, the key ones, the important ones, the ones that we really just don't want to miss. And this first week, I don't want us to miss that the church belongs to God. What do you think about that with me today? You know, when we talk about the church, we're not going to be talking about the building, you know, not 4909 Aurora. No, when we talk about the church, we talk about the people, right? The people. But, you know, we talk about the people, but it really involves all of it. We talk about the people. We talk about the gifts, the ministries, and, yes, the assets, the building, the land. Folks, it all belongs to God. You say, well, that's so basic and so obvious. Well, I hope it is. You say, well, right, that is basic. And, but maybe it isn't. Because I will confess to you that I belong to the cadre of pastors and preachers and ministers. And I am sorry to say that there is a malady that we as pastors and preachers and ministers struggle with. And it's this one. We can think and act like the church belongs to us. I'll be quick to admit that. But you know... It doesn't stop there, does it? I think church people and members can suffer from the same malady. Church members and church attenders can, the church belongs to us. Isn't that what it means to become a member? You know, I voted, I gave my time and my money to make this church what it is. Or beyond that, some would say, well, the church belongs to the neighborhood. Or others still, the church belongs to the denomination. But here at the beginning of this series, the church, local and universal, the church past, present, and future, it all belongs to God. And to get really personal, 
Westchester belongs to God. If you haven't already, would you please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2. We're going to focus in today on verses 9 and 10 of this passage of Scripture. Maybe you want to take some notes, pull out the outline. 1 Peter chapter 2, the context here is uh, Peter's talking about uh, uh, Jesus being the living stone. That when we come to Jesus, we, the followers of Jesus, are being built into this spiritual house. But then he goes on in 1 Peter 2 that some reject this stone. In fact, some people stumble over the stone of the living stone of Jesus. And then we come to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. Oh, Lord, would you help us as we look at this verse? Lord, as we look at some theology that is impacted, some implications of this, Father, I pray that you would teach us today. Lord, make it clear to us, each one of us here, that the church, Heavenly Father, belongs to you. We are your possession. Show us what that means, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. First Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it starts, you are a chosen nation. These phrases are just incredible. I'd like to look at all of them. We're just going to focus on the last one that's mentioned. But a chosen nation, just as Israel of old was chosen from all of the people of the earth, Israel was chosen. Folks, we too are chosen and there's so much that that means. And the, the significance of that is incredible. But you are chosen. Oh, and may that sink deep. Oh, and may you see that God has taken us and has planted us deeply in his heart. A chosen nation, a royal priesthood. God has given us the dignity of of access and of worship and of service. We are a holy nation. We've been set apart. We've been saved and remade. And then the fourth, fourth phrase there is that we are a people for his own possession. Today, would you I would look at I'd like you to look at some theology with me, and then we're going to look at many implications of this. So first of all, let's make an Old Testament comparison. If we are this possession of God, uh, we need to make the Old Testament comparison. In the Old Testament, Israel, the Jews, were God's special possession. They were his people. If you've studied the Old Testament, if you've heard the stories, if you considered it, we see it over and over that Israel, of old, was God's special people. 
There's a couple of key Bible passages that deal with this. The first one's in Deuteronomy 7. You can turn in your Bibles or it's going to be up here on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 8, which says this. For you, here he's talking to the Jews that are assembled. For you are a, a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peop- all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They were a special people. And think if you were there. And think if you were amongst all of those people who have gathered and how significant that would have felt. Oh, another passage. Over in the book of Exodus, chapter 19. This is right before God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites and the rest of the law. And he was saying some words that God the Father wanted Moses to say to the people. And here in chapter 19, I'm going to read 5 and 6. So now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And were you listening? Did you hear the, the similarities between Exodus and First Peter? And how in Exodus that was being said to the people of Israel. And in First Peter some of the same phrases were being said to the church. And as significant as that must have been for those in Israel's day, as they were wandering, as they were being taken out of, as they were in slavery, all of this going, that we were God's special possession. My friends, the body of Christ here at Westchester, do we hear those words ringing in our ears? That we are God's special possession. We belong to God. Israel, in this Old Testament comparison, Israel belonged to God. And we read, not because they were better, not because they were bigger, not because they were holier. It was because God, in his mercy and his love, chose them. And that's why they survived. And that's why they're still surviving, is because God provided for and protected them. But it's also why their disobedience and their rebellion was so devastating, is because God remained faithful to his covenant, and they didn't. This Old Testament comparison. Now, not to get all Watson on you, but uh, there's some theology here that we kind of have to work through. Uh, And I would say there is a theological question. Maybe there's even a theological debate that we need to be aware of as we make this Old Testament comparison. And it's this. Does the church 
replace Israel as God's special possession? It's a fair question. And I think it's one we, we need to address and talk about. Because, and there's lots of different answers to that question. Some would say, yes, the church replaces Israel. And there's a line of theology. It's a supersessionism. Or in other words, replacement theology. And it goes this way. When Israel rejected Jesus, at the time when Jesus was on the earth, when Israel and the Jews rejected Jesus then, that was it for them. That was the end. This special relationship that God had with the Jews and with Israel, when they rejected the Messiah, when they rejected Jesus, it was over. And now, it's all about the church. It's solely and only the church. Some would hold that. We wouldn't. I wouldn't. In our covenantal theology, we would say, no, the church doesn't replace Israel. Though the church completes it, the church fulfills the people of God. And on the whole concept of the Gentiles being grafted in. And as we think further, as we try to get this right, the people of God are by faith. In fact, it's always been by faith, not just by genealogy. And as we think further, yes, many, if not most, of the promises to Israel are fulfilled in the church, but not all of them. Israel still holds a special place in God's plan, and someday there will be a remnant. In fact, we're going to look at another verse. It's going to be up on the screen. It's over a couple of them, over in Romans 9. Verses 27, I'm going to start with 25, and Paul is talking, and he says, Indeed, it says this in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. As you follow along, as you listen, that's first talking about us, the Gentiles. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. For her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Praise the Lord that those verses have come true. That we've been included in. That we've been grafted in. And then verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. There will be a remnant. There will be a turning. And I think, and this is important, It's very important with this theology. And as we think about it, there will be a turning, and it won't be because of genealogy. It will be because they recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, and they will accept him and believe, just as you have, if you are a follower of Jesus. Well, before we go on, there's something... Uh, more, I just want to say about this. It's maybe a little bit of a side, and I, I don't want to get all political on us here. Uh, I believe I want to be theological about this. Uh, but as a, a student of history, it seems like God has blessed the nations that have protected and befriended Israel. Again, I don't want to get political, 
But as I study history, it just seems like that's true. And I've been forced to think. I do believe that, that God would bless any nation that protected and respected and befriended the church. Because we are the people of God. And I don't see that. As a student of history, you see a lot where you know, the, 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 church, the political state becomes an enemy of the church. And we've seen that unfold. Oh, that even our country would more and more befriend the church, the possession of God. Well, the Old Testament comparison. Secondly, I'd like us to consider the means. How have we, how does anyone become God's possession? Oh, back to 1 Peter 2. Verse 10 really spells it out for us. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And a parallel sentence to that. They go hand in glove. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The means, how is it that we have become the possession of God? It is by God's mercy. It is by the gospel. We are talking again about the grace of God. We are talking again because we always talk about it. We are talking about what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's why we have become the people of God. It's through the mercy and grace of our Heavenly Father. Listen how the Apostle Paul has said this. Over in Titus chapter 2, he says it this way, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. The grace of God has appeared, verse 12, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Are zealous for good works. Did you hear it again? It is because of what Jesus did. It's because he redeemed us and bought us back that we have become God's possession. You know, the old Scottish reformers, when they would present the gospel, they would use three words. They would use three words that start with the letter R. And the first one is this it's ruin. Ruin. And yes, that's talking about who we are on our own, that we are lost. And as it says in first, Paul and Titus, that we are lawless. Peter would say we are not a people. Romans would tell us that we are separated from God. We are lost. We are destined for wrath. That's the ruin. And all of us must come to grips and honest and acknowledge the ruin, the sinfulness, the death that has come because of our sin. The second R is redemption. 
And they would talk about redemption. By, we're redeemed by, by God's grace that Jesus bought us back. That we were lost and we are separated. And Jesus comes by his death and pays the price and buys us back. Ruin, redemption, and then regeneration. That the Holy Spirit brings new life. And it's talking about being born again. It's also talking about the the transformed life the Holy Spirit does in the life of the followers of Jesus. Ruin, redemption, and regeneration. That's why we are God's special possession. Now Israel, not because they were bigger, better, holier. Us today, same thing. Not because we were better or any bigger or any, no, what we were, we're lost, sinners, unable. And then God's grace and mercy came. So, as we sit here today, as God's special possession, there is no arrogance possible. Because we know who we are. I know who I am. And the ruin of my life. And then God's mercy and his grace comes. And in Jesus, we become God's special possession. I've been reading and finished, I've recently finished the autobiography of Richard Hobson, who ministered in Liverpool, England, around 1900. The last few words of his autobiography, at the end of his life, he writes this simple poem. Happy, happy, happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name, preach him to all, and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. It's Jesus. That's the means. Now, some implications. Some implications of the fact that the church belongs to God. The church and individual Christians belong to God. You belong to God. Your loved ones belong to God. If we were to look around, in fact, look around, all the people of Westchester We all belong to God. And then I have to say, if you're tracking with me, sometimes we don't like the idea of being possessed by someone else. It kind of has a ring of slavery to us, doesn't it? What? I'm someone else's possession? And then with the same breath... Maybe people don't like the idea of being someone's possession, but people do desire to belong. You belong to God. And that's significant. Here are some implications. I have four verbs I'd like to give you. The first one is value. Do you have something that is valuable to you because it used to belong to someone famous? I mean, think if you had Lincoln's stovepipe hat. Whoa, that'd be really valuable. 
Or think if you had one of Winston Churchill's cigars. Ah, this cigar used to belong to Winston Churchill. That would be something of great value. Or think if you had a guitar string of someone, you know, some, some, some artist for you. Who would it be? Think if you had a guitar string of Austin Hilmer. <laughs> you know, if we own something, if we have something, and it's valuable because it was possessed by someone else. Folks, that's the church. That's Westchester. The value of Westchester. That's how we should feel about Westchester. There's great value because Westchester belongs to God. It's amazing. Remember when you borrowed the keys to your mom and dad's car? At least this is how I was. I, I didn't want to bring it back with scratches or dents, you know, because I, I wanted to borrow it again someday. We're the bride of Christ. You know, every bride is beautiful. We're the bride of Christ. You know, think about it. You, you never insult someone's uh, child or or someone's spouse, or, or someone's baby. You just don't. And we are the bride of Christ. You know, I have some friends in my pastor circles who are very critical, very judgmental, very degrading of the church. And I know that the church is imperfect. I'm part of the church, so I know how imperfect this church is. And I, I get all of that. But I, I, I believe we should value the church. A, a, another verb is sacrifice. Sacrifice. We want for the church what God wants. Why? Because the church belongs to God. So we want for the church what God wants. Gordon MacDonald recently, or this is back a little ways, wrote a book entitled, I'm sure he wasn't the one who gave the title to his book, but it was Who Stole My Church was the name of the book. It actually is a very good book. But I've always wrestled with the, the title. A better, much more fascinating book would have been Who Stole God's Church. So this sacrifice idea. It's not what I want. It's what God wants for Westchester. So our marching orders, our organizational orders, our tasks, our priorities, folks, we must be Bible-driven. It's God's church. And I think today we need to hear these words. Bible-driven, not need-driven, not trend-driven driven, Bible-driven. Not needs, not my needs or my wants or my generation's needs. It is what God wants. I think realizing that the church belongs to God calls us to sacrifice. A third. Hope. 
I read, I watch, I... The American church appears to be in trouble. Declining numbers. Seems like the church... We're just trading members and attenders. Seems like there's a lack of cooperation. There's an infighting. There's a neglect of the scriptures. How can we have hope? Well, we can because it's God's church. God has been preserving the church for 2,000 years. It is still here. It was planned and built and purchased by God. He is the architect, the designer, the defender. What did Jesus say? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Hope. Now I know that I can be called Pollyannish when it comes to the church. And maybe you've even done that. I know I can. I see the positive. I love what the church is. And I love what the church is becoming. When it comes to the church, I am hopeful. And yes, maybe it's my personality. But I hope it's because I, I admire the church and I'm hopeful about the church because I know who the church belongs to. I know the one who is building the church. So would you join me in hope and confidence and anticipation of what God is going to do in and through his church? The last implication, the last verb is commit. Folks, we are spiritual blood relatives, uh, That demands commitment. And could you hear me now through good times and hard times? I believe in a loyalty to the body of Christ. And yes, there are other good churches. There's other good churches in Des Moines. But no, it should not be that easy that we up and leave a church when things don't go my way. Or when things get hard. I think it's one of those things that has kind of crept into the American church, to the Western church. We have so many good churches. I don't believe it should be easy to just up and leave. Because the things aren't going my way. And Besides, it, it isn't my church. It's God's church. I believe we are called to stay and display the manifold wisdom of God. Stay and display the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's stay. Let's commit to each other. And I appreciate the commitment of Westchester. And we stay and we proclaim to the heavenlies what it means to live out forgiveness and reconciliation and oneness. We stay together. We're committed to each other because we want to be people who declare the excellencies by showing and living out that He is our peace. 
we're spiritual blood relatives. Folks, we're members. So talk about membership. And there's no legalism. You don't need to be a member to become a Christian or to be saved. But we unite with other relatives. Yeah, we're all in this commitment. Yeah, we're the bride of Christ. Are you married? Are you just dating? You know, we're the bride of Christ. We commit to each other. Uh, in this commit idea, Westchester, we, we are a gathering of God's people. In Hebrews 10, 25, do not give up meeting together as is the habit of some. And here's another growing issue today across the churches of America. It's just so easy to give it up. Oh, I don't feel like going to church today. Folks, we are a gathering of of God's possession. The significant thing when we come together corporately to worship God and to serve together. That's why it's it's worthy of our efforts, our commitment, our love, our support, our sacrifice, our suffering, our loyalty. The church is not just another religious institution formed by like-minded people. The church is not like some social club or exercise group or athletic association. No, the church universal, the church local, Westchester belongs to God. And we are a chosen nation. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are a people who belong to God. Pastor Chuck is going to come in just a moment to lead us in communion and for us to remember what Jesus did by God's grace, God's mercy to make us his people. As Chuck is coming, would you, would you pray with me? Father, just thank you for this passage of scripture. Lord, I pray you would use it in our lives. Thank you for the church. Thank you for what Jesus did. That we might know you. That we might become a part of your people. Help us as we remember. In Christ's name, amen.